It is a delight for me to have the opportunity to open the Scriptures uh, with you this morning. And as I do so, I want to again express my, our deep appreciation for the sabbatical uh, that you so generously provided for us. What a great blessing that was for us. Thank you for your love that you so lavishly showed us. And thank you for your love and support for us and our family and for Adelaide and Chandler last weekend. I know many of you were praying for that and encouraged them, and that was such a wonderful, joyful time for us. Well, one of the goals of the sabbatical was for some physical and spiritual refreshment, and that was certainly there. But another goal of the sabbatical was for some relaxed and focused study. So over the summer, I gave my attention to um, studying the Psalms. And because of my schedule was freed up, I had the freedom just to read large chunks of the Psalms and to read the Psalm over and over again. And what a delight that was for, for me as I did that. just allowed me to see connections and progressions that I hadn't seen before, allusions that I hadn't seen, um, to see places where the New Testament uh, is either directly alluding to uh, a psalm or maybe a little more indirectly alluding to that. And, and time and time again, I, I was just so thankful that I could sit down and read, I don't know, 50 psalms ago, just reading through, and then just be able to sit down again and read a whole set of psalms together. And that was a wonderful time. And along with that, I was also able to read some scholarly works alongside, uh, just help deepen my understanding, sharpen me, challenge me, guide me. And again, I want to say thank you for that. So I'm looking forward, uh, as I have opportunity to preach in the coming months, uh, to opening the Psalms up um, more with you as I preach. And I anticipate that I'll do that in a little more, uh, in a systematic way. But this morning, I'm going to drop in to the middle of the Psalms, well, not quite the middle, almost the middle of the Psalms. Um, this, uh, uh, many Psalms intrigued me, caught my attention in many ways. This Psalm particularly intrigued me and caught my attention, and um, I, I wanted the discipline of sermon preparation um, to, as it were, provoke me to even more attentive study of this Psalm. So... Um, no greater reason for Psalm 87 being here this morning than it caught my attention, and I want to share that with you this morning. So please turn to Psalm 87, and I'll read that. Please give your attention to God's Word. Psalm 87, a psalm of the sons of Korar, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we give our attention to this psalm this morning, help us to understand the truth that is here. 
And may that not be a mere intellectual enterprise. But may we know the transforming work of your word and truth in our lives. May we be stirred to thankfulness and to worship. We pray this because of Christ. Amen. So before we actually hit the psalm, I want to do... I want to say some things about the book of Psalms, and I'll continue to do that as I have opportunity to preach. Um, but the first thing I want to talk, talk about is something that is, uh, I think we'd all take for granted, but I want to spend some time just thinking about the implications of the fact that the book of Psalms is inspired. So most of us are pretty familiar with uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God or is breathed out by God. And the primary uh, object of that statement that, that is in Paul's mind is the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, as he's thinking about the Scriptures that are inspired, that are breathed out by God, what we know as the Old Testament. So when we think of the inspiration of Scripture, what are we doing? We're acknowledging that God is the ultimate author. The Bible is not merely man's reflections on the views of spirituality. It's not man creating a theology out of their experience fundamental to everything we read in the scripture is that God is revealing himself and working in human authors and through their experience and through their thinking so that what they would write was true to their experience but was in accord with what the grand author of scripture would have them write. And so we think of what we read in 2 Peter 1 verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is our view of the inspiration of Scripture. And of course, we think of the Psalms, the book of Psalms, as being inspired as well. But as we think about the Psalms, and we think about the inspiration of Scripture, we need to have the perspective not just about an individual Psalm, but the book of Psalms as a whole. That our view of inspiration, I would submit, should be such that as we come to the book of the Psalms, we see the Psalms as a cohesive whole. Individual Psalms authored by God, but the book of Psalms curated by God through His servants. So, we should be attentive then not just to the Psalm itself, but what's surrounding it. What's its context, the, the context within the book of Psalms, and then, of course, the context in the larger Old Testament and across Old and New Testament. So, not just the Psalm itself, but its canonical context, its, its context within the canon of Scripture. So, as we think about the inspiration of Scripture and the inspiration of a Psalm and the inspiration of the book of Psalms, I just want to point to two indicators, um, there, are, there are more than two, but for the sake of time, just two briefly, of why we would say that the book of Psalms should be seen as a collection of Psalms intentionally given to us through the prophets of the Old Testament by God. Firstly, as we look at the Psalms, we see there's a trajectory through the book of Psalms. So if you read from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, 
and, and you read and you think, what's happening? Why are these together? You begin to see that there's a trajectory throughout the book. The first psalm, um, or the first two psalms, kind of act as an introduction. The first psalm, what's it say? It, it says, blessings be upon you if you give your attention to this teaching. Blessings upon you. So there's the introduction. And then, then psalm, chap, um, psalm 2 is an, introduc- is an introductory psalm because it's pointing to the significance of the Davidic covenant. This covenant with David, made about 3,000 years ago in our time, this covenant made with David anticipates a unique descendant of David, an anointed one, a Messiah, who will reign forever and ever over the whole world. And Psalm 2 introduces um, those theological concepts to the book of Psalms, referencing the Davidic covenant. And then as we, as you progress through, I'm just kind of, this is a super jump, right? The trajectory goes through and we get to the end of the book of Psalms and we see this series of songs of praise. And we refer to these Uh, We refer to these as the Hallelujah Psalms. And you might think of the word Hallelujah as, that's that's a pretty frequently used term in the Bible. It's actually not. It's a very rarely used word. And when you look at its placement in the book of Psalms, and you look at its placement in the book of Revelation, you realize that this word is a word of significance that is an expression of jubilation at the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, all coming in wondrous, glorious praise to God as we see His faithfulness and His goodness. So there's a trajectory through the book of Psalms, but also as we look at the book of Psalms, we see there are groupings. Firstly, um, the book of Psalms has five main sections, or what are referred to as books. So most of your Bible translations probably have Throughout um, your copy of the Psalms, it'll say book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And um, one of the things that marks off these sections is the way the last part of the last Psalm of the sections, they they have this repeating phrase that kind of mark it off. So Psalm 41, the end of Psalm 41, we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It sounds different than all the way the previous Psalms have ended. And then in um, Psalm 72, the end of book 2. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. A summary statement that that we see there. Uh, Then as we look at the end of Psalm 89... Blessed be the Lord forever, a man and a man. And you go, oh, we've heard that before. We heard that at the end of book one. And then over to Psalm 106, the end of Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen. Praise the Lord. So there are these sectional markings that we see within the text that, that point us towards the fact that the book of Psalms is a carefully curated, a carefully structured book. It's not like there was um, like a, a Psalms lotto machine, throw 150 in, one, two, three, it wasn't like that. No, Psalm 1 
is particularly Psalm 1 for a very important reason. And Psalm 150 is 150 for a very important reason. And I would submit we should see that not merely as the arrangement of human authors, but of the particular arrangement of the divine author. We also see sections, groupings of Psalms. The Psalms of David, which make up the the majority of the first two books. Then we see songs, uh, psalms of the song, sons of Korah, and we see psalms of Asaph. And so there are groupings there. And so again, we see there's um, some intentionality in how these are grouped. And then when you kind of dive in a little deeper, you see particular structural markers and phrases or words that the authors do. Sometimes that there'll be a section of psalms where the predominant name of God is Elohim, and the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is small, and then other sections of Psalms. The predominant name of God used is Yahweh, and the minority use is Elohim. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Again, there's, there's, there are definite structural indicators throughout the book that we should see the whole book of Psalms as a particular structure. And we should... Uh, there is a uniqueness, certainly, to the book of Psalms. It's not structured like a history book, or like Genesis, or like an epistle. And so that does allow us, in some sense, to kind of drop down into a psalm and draw some richness from that psalm. But if that's all we do, we'll probably not get to the... I'm sure we won't get to the depth of the meaning of that psalm. And you won't get to the level of impact that God would have for you from the reading of that psalm when you read it in isolation. So, so broad category statement here, we should no more read a psalm in isolation than a chapter from Genesis or of Matthew or of Galatians. You can fruitfully read a chapter in Galatians, but you can't mind the depths of the meaning and significance of that chapter in Galatians unless you understand what Paul's doing through the whole book of Galatians. And so it is with the book of Psalms. So I want to move then from just thinking of um, Psalms and broad overview to kind of think about Psalm 87 itself. I want to ask the question, before we actually um, look at Psalm 87 more particularly, I want to ask the question, what's its canonical context? What's happening in the Psalms around it? Where does Psalm 87 fit? Well, we find it in book 3. Book 3 has 17 psalms, 73 to 89. And in contrast to the first two books of the psalms, this book 3 no longer has King David as the focus. But rather, there's a, um, a focus or an expression of the corporate community of the people of Israel. And there's an emphasis on the destruction that the people of God have experienced from other nations. It's kind of the broad focus of what's happening here in book 3. If you turn to Psalm 73, we see here a psalm that's wrestling with the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when, they saw the pros- when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I ask, what, what, is this like a, an individual wicked person in that community. This is a personal psalm, but the personal psalm is reflecting on corporate 
and national realities. Who are the arrogant? We, we see something of this in verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. This is speaking of, as it were, arrogant nations. And this thought is picked up then in Psalm 74. We see more clarity on the opposition that's in mind here. So Psalm 74 verse 3, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. The arrogance of these nations. They were like those who swing axes in a forest. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. In other words, just as woodsmen would go into the forest to to bring trees down, people came with axes into the temple and cut it down. Verse 7, they set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. So here's the perspective um, that we're faced with in in this section. Psalm 73 is this personal uh, expression of woe and distress at the arrogant. And Psalm 74 is this more corporate expression as they reflect on the destruction of Jerusalem, on the destruction of the temple. Look over at verse um, 9. Sorry, I want to go to the last section, Psalm 89. I want, to see what book, I want you to see what bookends this, this section, Psalm 89. It concludes also with this expression of devastation and destruction. Psalm 89, verse 39. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in the ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. So here, the servant, verse 39, the servant had a crown. The servant. Who is the servant? The servant is referencing King David. So the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem's destroyed. Burned to the ground. And what has happened to the glorious throne of David? Seen in the glorious throne and the crown of King Solomon. The crown is in the dust. There is no king reigning. There is no city. It's destroyed. There is no temple. It's been reduced to rubble and burned. It's ashes. Well, moving on, as we um, look through the flow, I'm just kind of picking some high points here. In Psalm 77 and 78, we see this recalling of God's power to deliver. He delivered the people in the Exodus, and God proved His faithfulness. And the people were in need of a leader, and God proved His faithfulness and established David as the shepherd king. Why is this brought up? What, what context does this play? Well, here are the people. Jerusalem is devastated. There is no king. Lord, have you forgotten us? Well, we remember, Lord, your power demonstrated in the Exodus. And Lord, we remember your power demonstrated in establishing David as king. If that is your power to deliver, deliver us. We look forward to future deliverance in this time of devastation. Psalm 79, 
again describes the devastation in Jerusalem and in the temple. Psalm 79 verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. Think of what image is being described here. The, The city is in ruins and there are dead bodies around everywhere. Can you imagine the stench? The sense of devastation. The sense of the power and authority of these nations that have come in and destroyed the kingdom. The might of King David, the glory of King Solomon, rubbleized. Verse 4. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry with us forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. There's this reflection on the devastation and reflection on on the nations who've done this. And there's this prayer, oh Lord, destroy them. Bring them into judgment for destroying your temple and your people. This is developed further along. I just want to jump into Psalm 82. Again, I plea to judge the nations. Psalm 83. Uh, I'll just pick up in Psalm 83, verse 5. Speaking of the nations, they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Here's this listing of the nations. These are the nations. These are the nations that have opposed us and brought devastation upon us. Well, these first 11 Psalms of Book 3, if you've been paying attention, you'll see are all Psalms of Asaph. And now in the next section, beginning in verse 84, we see predominantly Psalms of the sons of Korah. And in this section, not only do we see a change of author, but we see a change of tone. The first section really emphasizing and recounting the the despair of the devastation. But these songs of the sons of Korah really have an emphasis on hope in God's faithfulness in fulfilling His covenant promises. There is one psalm in this section by King David. Incidentally, another indicator of a carefully curated collection. And it would cause us to go, why is there a King David psalm in here? What's significant about this psalm by King David in this context? So it draws attention to the content as well um, as just referencing the author. And so this, this psalm, Psalm 86, King David declares something of great confidence. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. I think the, the curiosity 
or no, maybe that's the wrong word, the, uh, the provocation of the psalm. Devastation, devastation, devastation. Lord, when will you rescue us? Oh, Lord, judge these foreign nations. And then in the context of these um, post-destruction psalms, these are authored after the destruction of Jerusalem, the psalm of David is pulled up and plopped down in here. And here's this proclamation of David. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. It's kind of provocative. Hang on. I'm not sure I want that. We want these nations destroyed. What do we do with this prophecy of King David that the nations would worship God? What does it work here? What will God do? And so you see that this is not just a random psalm thrown in. It's a psalm that's, that's pro- pro- particularly provocative and, and does something in this context of these 17 psalms in book 3. So as we come to Psalm 87, here's a summary. The temple and the city of Jerusalem has been plundered. It's burnt. It's destroyed. It's devastated. And the people are in exile. Those um, who, who survived, who weren't killed in and around Jerusalem, are now in exile. There's no descendant of David ruling on the throne. The crown is in the dust. There is both an expectation that the nations will be judged... But also, prophecy of King David, Psalm 86, that there will be the worship of God by the nations. So, there's this combined expectation of judgment and worship. So, all this helps us as we come to Psalm 87. It helps orient us to to the perspective. It's a time Where Jerusalem is in devastation, the people are in exile. There's no king on the throne. And so as we read this psalm, it kind of stands out. This is is a psalm talking about the glories of Jerusalem. This is is not a psalm that's reflecting on present realities. This is a futuristic psalm. The psalm is pointing way in the future about what God will do. These are future realities glories that are being spoken of here in Psalm 87. So as we give our attention here, we see three broad sections uh, marked out by this kind of note, Selah. So we have verses 1 through 3, which speak of God's love, which results in glorious things being spoken. Verses 4 through 6, we see a divine declaration or proclamation or oracle of new birth. And then in verse 7, a joyful response of the peoples. We're going to quickly kind of look at the outline of this psalm. So firstly, verses 1 through 3, God's love results in glorious things. So again, as we think about the context, the exile, the devastation, there's an astounding, confident expectation being expressed here. And as we read the psalm just itself, we're not sure what's the perspective of the author. What's the perspective of the psalm? What's we might say the um, what does the grammar invite us in to consider the the outlook? We might even say the horizon. 
at first we might think that the author is contemporary with this glorious city founded by God. Maybe he's writing from that perspective. Well, no, the context pushes us away from that. And then as we think about the context and give our attention particularly to the psalm, we see that the grammar of the psalm also matches this canonical context. Look at verse 5. And of Zion, it shall be said. It shall be said. It shall be said, for the Most High Himself will establish her. So, Psalm 87 has this futurist perspective. The author has this futuristic perspective in this context of devastation. There is an expectation of God doing something in the future. So, that's how the psalm begins. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. Now, the, uh, the, the wording in the psalm is very crisp, and so our translators have had to add words in. But the beginning of the psalm really starts out with this concept of founded. That's, that's the, the first word that kind of hits you as you read the psalm. Founded is... It's not even clear what is. It's supplied coming on. So it might be founded upon the holy mountain is, is how the psalm starts. So here it is. God founding. God establishing. Zion, the holy mount, words that have been used in the past to reflect on Jerusalem, now it's in devastation, but there's this confidence, God will do something. Will this be like the old Jerusalem? Was the old Jerusalem founded by God? This new Jerusalem that's founded and established by God, is that, is that going to be something different? Because the first Jerusalem, like how sure was that? It's in ruins. How could God let His Jerusalem, His temple, be devastated and ruined and destroyed? Will this new Zion be something different? That God is founding? This expectation of God founding and establishing Zion finds parallels in other passages. I'm going to particularly look at some passages in Isaiah. Let's just pause here for a minute. If Psalm 87 is written after the devastation of Jerusalem, then the psalmist who wrote Psalm 87, not only is he carried along by the Spirit of God and what he says, but he also has in his mind all of what God has already said, including the prophecies of Isaiah. So what we're about to read from Isaiah was written before what is being said here in Psalm 87. So Isaiah 54, 11 says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles. Now here's a prophecy in Isaiah speaking of the wonders of the Zion that is yet future. And as you read that prophecy in Isaiah 54.11, you're thinking, what kind of city will this be? Because we don't build that way. However this Zion is being described, 
is, is um, exciting our imaginations. It, it's saying things that's taking us out of our, um, in that time period, of their experience of architecture, of building. And so the imagery that's being used in Isaiah in this prophecy is one that provokes kind of a wonderment, a foundation of sapphires. So we see that in verse in chapter 54 of Isaiah, but also another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, his holy mount, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now let's just think about this geographically. Uh, Jerusalem is not the highest mountain in Palestine. It's certainly not the highest mountain in the world. Now, did people in, um, of that time period know of other higher mountains? Well, there are higher mountains up in t- what we now know as Turkey. Travel was certainly there. So, so Jerusalem is not a high mount. It is on a rise. It's, it's on a, um, an elevated area. But as we look at Isaiah 2.2, we see it's speaking of a geography that, that rattles or, or expands our sense of what this world is. There's something grand. There's something marvelous. There's something that exceeds all human experience. This Zion that is yet to be built by God is beyond our ability to comprehend. And what we do see in Scripture is enough for us to go, wow, all I have is wonderment and very little understanding. So as Psalm 87 is written, can we say the the historical perspective of Psalm 87 is one that says some things about this future Zion that's not completely new to the people of Israel. There is some expectation that this future Zion will be very different. So it's founded by God. We know from Isaiah... It's founded with sapphires. But we also see another indicator in this text of this hard-to-comprehend, futuristic reality of this Zion. Verse 7. Singers and dancers alike will say, all my springs are in you. Now, it's kind of odd phrasing. Lots of commentators wrestle over what in the world is, is this pointing to. This idea in this psalm, Psalm 87, about springs coming from Jerusalem is actually reflected in another psalm by the sons of Korah, and that is Psalm 46. Psalm 46.4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. But here's a problem. There's no river that's streaming out of Jerusalem. So there's this expectation, again, that whatever this will be in the future is very much unlike what is there presently. So all of this points God's people to consider that the Jerusalem of King David, the Jerusalem of King Solomon, the the temple of King Solomon, are mere shadows of the future eternal reality of Zion, the eternal city of God. 
So we might speak of the historical or the historic city of Zion and of the new city of Zion, a new city that transcends everything about the old city. It's something futuristic and amazing. So we move on from verse 1, reflecting on this city founded by God on His holy mount. In verse 2, we read, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. There's something about this new futuristic city that is the focus of God's special love. Now, is it because God loves stone structures or pearls or particular rare jewels? How should we draw out what's being represented here? Again, it prompts us to consider the spiritual realities, the futuristic realities that are being spoken of. Yahweh loves, the Lord loves the inhabitants of Zion. He loves to bless them. He loves to be with them. He will bless them with His presence, with His goodness, and with His holiness. God's special love is focused here. This is a unique place. We know He loved the people descended from Jacob. He promised them a land and gave them a land. And it was a lavish land filled with wonderful things and filled with abundance. And they built cities and towns. All that is as nothing in comparison to the focus of God's love and promises and power in this new future Zion. Yahweh loves to be with His people. So what is the true essence of this new Jerusalem? God dwelling with His people, manifesting His glorious love. Now, the last line of this section introduces what's going to follow. So we might, to kind of give the sense here, another way to phrase verse 3 here is, wonderful things are about to be announced of you, great city of God. So it's, it's not just a broad statement, glorious things are spoken of Zion or the city of God in general or in the past, but it's an introductory phrase to heighten our anticipations. Wonderful things are about to be announced to the city of God. Now listen, because what you're just about to hear is amazing. It is wonderful. It is glorious. It is staggering. It will blow your imagination. And what is that? Well, let's go to verse 4. The divine declaration. We, we might call this even a divine oracle. It it starts out, I will mention, God will say, what will he say? Among those who know me. Now this is not, as you think about the way this is used in scripture, knowing God and God knowing people is not just about an intellectual thing. The wicked do not know God. God does not know the wicked. He only knows the righteous because it is only the righteous He blesses. And it's only the righteous who have any claim to the blessing of God, have any claim to the goodness of God, have any claim to say, my God. So among those who are in the privileged position to know God, know God in blessing, are Rahab and Babylon, Philistia and Tyre, 
and Cush. Now, there's a, a poetic reference here. So Rahab, you might read that and go, what nation is Rahab? Rahab um, is referencing Egypt. You might want to ta- um, write down Isaiah 30, verse 7. Uh, so it's a way to reference Egypt as like the um, arrogant water monster. Might be a, a way to characterize how those words are being used. So who are those who know God? Who are, who are those who are in this special relationship? Well, there's Egypt, who is a foreign nation who, who helped destroy Israel. There's Babylon. They're the ones who came in and finally completely ransacked and leveled Jerusalem and the temple. And then there's more localized, Philistia and Tyre, and there's Cush. Not only are these representing nations that we have some understanding of, but these are representing points of the compass. Egypt in the west, Babylon in the east, Tyre and Philistia in the north, Cush down in the south. Foreign opposing nations from north, south, east, and west, are now in this place of privileged position who can say they know God. And so what is God declaring? He's saying, in, in this future city of God, in this future Zion, people who know me from all these regions, what will be said of them? End of verse 4. This one was born there, they say. And this idea of born there is now repeated three times. Verse 5, And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the people, This one was born there. Now do you think there's an emphasis on being born here? There is. I mean, that's, that, that's the astounding thing. What, what glorious thing has been spoken of, of this futuristic new Zion? That the foreign nations who are opposed to God now know God. And how is it that they came to this place of knowing God? They have been birthed in Zion. They have been born. So Yahweh here is saying something of the mechanism with which he will accomplish this profound spiritual turnaround where these foreign nations know him. So, former enemies, not descended from Abraham or Isaac and Jacob, not physical people of Israel, are now counted as people native-born. But it doesn't say native-born in Israel. It says native-born in Zion. So, from just, just from an Old Testament perspective here, Uh, with a mere focus on physical Israel and physical descent, we might say that this passage is metaphorically saying that the people who were born not physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are considered on an equal with those who were born to Israelite parents in Zion. And there, there might be some fairness to that initial assessment. But the psalm is not saying that. It's actually declaring with a threefold emphasis that these people will be born in Zion. So with with the broader context, 
of this psalm, it's a, it's a psalm that has a futuristic perspective of Zion. With the immediate context of this psalm, this is a mountain founded by God. Isaiah tells us, yeah, founded by God with sapphires as a foundation. It has springs and rivers coming out of it. Um, psalm 46 and Psalm 87, 7 should cause us to think, as much as this new Jerusalem transcends our understanding of present architecture and buildings, may it be also that this birth also transcends our understanding of birth up to this point. And of course, I mean, I've set it up, right? I believe we should read it that way. The psalm directs us to anticipate the glories that are being spoken of here of Zion. So, being born, we should take that very seriously. Born in her. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, made before um, Christ came, so maybe second, gener- second century uh, BC, it actually, the, the wording here is Mother Zion, is the way it translates this idea of being born in Zion. So, the founding and establishing of this new Zion by God is reason. It's, 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 it's what sets this Zion apart. And it's because of this that this new birth happens. Look closely at verse 5. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High Himself will establish her. So the birth is connected to God establishing. There's a connection there. Whatever this establishing means in God's purposes and plans, it's the establishing, it's the kind of thing that God is doing in establishing this new futuristic Zion that is the foundation or the grounds for this kind of birth. What could it be? What's the expanse of what we're reading here? Well, in a few minutes, I'm going to go to some New Testament passages. But at the very least, let me say again, whatever this birth is, it's a kind of birth that transcends our understanding of births that we have, matching the kind of city this will be, transcending previous views of what Jerusalem was. I want to look at verse 7, and then I want to spend a little bit of time considering the New Testament. So verse 7, a joyful response by the peoples. Here it is. After this glorious thing that's proclaimed by God, what will happen in the future? What will be accomplished in the city of God? It's a glorious thing. It's an amazing thing. The transformation of foreign nations into this new city, born in her. What's the result? Joy. Singers and dancers. There's a celebration going on. This is an amazing thing. What happens when you hear glorious things? (laughs) You get excited. Because this is astounding. This is amazing. But then we have this enigmatic phrase. Singers and dancers alike will say, All my springs are in you. Um, You know, at first, it's like, what what is meant here? Um, we, We have to kind of look at the broader context, the canonical context of the book of Psalms, and then 
further as well. But if we just were to stay in the book of Psalms, I just want to go to two passages. If you go to Psalm 68, Psalm 68, 25. Notice the similarity of, of concepts that go together. So, um, 87.7, dancers and singers, all my springs are found in you. So, in that mind, Psalm 68, verse 25. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, and princes of Naphtali. So, this idea of celebration reflecting on a fountain from Israel. I want to go over to Psalm 36.9. Fountains bring life. Fountains bring fresh water through which we survive, right? Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So when this fountain springs, rivers is being talked about, it, it, it's, it's referring to life-giving. It's referring to survival. Maybe in some context it's just referring to a literal fountain or a, a spring um, where there's water, you feed the animals and they get water. But, but that reality is what gives richness to this proclamation. of God's life-giving reality. From Him flow fountains of life. Isaiah 12.3. Remember again, Isaiah was written before Psalm 87. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So let's go back to Psalm 87.7. The singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. I have life. Because life has come from you, Zion. The reason I live is because springs have come from which I live and exist. So, so verse 7 is this summary declaration of what's being talked about in 4, 5, and 6 with, with this threefold emphasis of being born in her. Born in her, born in her, born in her. Yes, we rejoice. We have received life. From Zion. Okay, what I want to do um, in the next few minutes is just touch on a few places in the New Testament that leads us to more deeply understanding, to understand the meaning here of Psalm 87. Now, I'm not, I'm not flowing, I'm not connecting all the dots. Uh, I'm not giving you full explanation. I, I hope you'll go away with these references written down and I've tickled your brain enough to want to pursue some rabbit trails here. So I understand I'm not trying to be comprehensive. Maybe as we've been reading, maybe your mind has already gone to some places in the New Testament. How about John 3? Where Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. You know, growing up in the church, I read John 3 and, and I was always perplexed by Jesus' admonishment to Nicodemus about his lack of understanding. And I'm like, where? How, how did Nicodemus, how was he supposed to know something about 
this new birth? Like, where, where does that come from? Look at John 3, verse 3. Here Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or born again, born from above. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, this idea of being born anew, It's found in the Old Testament. One of those places is Psalm 87. New life coming from the presence of God, coming from the city that God has founded, a futuristic city that transcends all understanding, a birth that transcends all understanding. What is that? The new birth through the Spirit of God. We've seen in Psalm 87 this threefold declaration of God founding Zion and the threefold declaration of being born in Zion. And this idea that God loves the gates of Zion. He loves the people. He loves, can we say, the avenue through which people will be born anew. Think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That he did what? He made a way for people to be born. How great is God's love for the gates of Zion? How great is God's love for us that he sent his son that we might be reborn? I'm going to go to Hebrews and just look at a few verses. Again, kind of just want to be, get your thinking and minds reflecting. I wonder if your mind went to some places in Hebrews at all. Hebrews 11 and verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Psalm 87 is talking about this city whose designer and builder is God. He founded her. He established her. Abraham was looking forward to this transcendent, futuristic city of Zion that Psalm 87 speaks of. Look down at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This futuristic Zion is beyond expectation, beyond comprehension, because this future Zion spoken of in Psalm 87 is not A city like had been there when King David built and Solomon built the temple. The reason Isaiah speaks of a foundation of sapphires is because the prophet and God through the prophet is is blowing our minds, as it were, to say this thing that's in the future is way beyond. It transcends all your human experiences. Why? Because it's a heavenly city. I'm reminded of John 14. What did Jesus say? Don't be worried. I go, what, what, what's he doing? Where's he going? I go to prepare a place for you. That sounds, you see those connections there? Yeah. The Son of God is preparing a place for us to dwell in. That we all might together to say, I was born in Zion. And we rejoice. We will rejoice and celebrate. 
One more place, Hebrews 12 and verse 18. Ideas here are expanded out. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet, and a voice whose words made the heavens beg and no further message be spoken of. He's speaking of God's appearing on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel just as they've come out of Egypt. For those people, verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Galatians 4, Paul also is thinking about Sinai and Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. Galatians 4 and verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by the free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present physical Jerusalem, stones, buildings, Palestine. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. You know, I used to read that. I'm like, what is Paul talking about? He is sucking stuff out of his thumb here right? No, this is straight from 87, right? Psalm 87. In fact, the Greek really matches the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Psalm 87. Mother Zion. Why is that? We have been birthed in new birth by God from above, through Christ, by His Spirit, the one who gives life. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. We are presently experiencing some of the reality of our new birth, but we're not, because that's not all sewn up and delivered yet. We're here on earth where there's sin and suffering and death. We have the new birth of Christ by the Spirit because of all that God has done and is doing in the heavenly places. Our new birth is from above. But oh, that we wait for that time when all things will be made new. And with new glorified bodies, we together may be celebrating and living out Psalm 87.7 that we together in dance and song will be singing all our springs are in you. And that will be the fullness and the completeness of our reality. How we long for that. I want to finish. I look at the time. I can't stop now. Just give me one more chapter. But I want you to read the whole chapter. Please turn to Revelation 21. Because this is what we're longing for. This is our expectation. We want to live in the fullness of the realities that Psalm 87 is telling us. 
It's pretty amazing so far. Sins forgiven, Spirit of God indwelling, joy from above. We look at friends and family who don't know the Lord and we grieve because of the hopelessness and the sadness of their lives. We are a privileged people. But it's going to get so much better. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall no more be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Over to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. God loves the gates of Zion, because they speak of the lavish grace of the gospel. And there will be no night there. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I didn't get to this part of Psalm 87, but Psalm 87 talks about God registering those who will be born in her. Yeah, our names are in the book of life because of the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. That helps us. Oh Lord, we want to endure faithfully trusting in you. And it's good for us in the middle of difficulty to be reminded of all the amazing transcendent realities that await. We thank you for the reality of new birth that we taste and experience right now. And how we long for and with expectation look to that time when all things will be made new and we will see with unveiled eyes your glory in the glorious new Zion and will with fullness celebrate as we experience all the glorious things of Zion. And we pray this because of Christ. Amen.